you are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Oh God, what it is, what a joy it is to be servants of the resurrected King. And just as the Son of God became one of us so that he could die and rise again. We, we are made sons and daughters of God. So, and we have the hope of a future resurrection and we are experiencing the newness of life. That same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of us by your spirit, God. We thank you so much for that. And God, we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you that nothing can defeat us, God. We thank you that you have won and that you will win and that you are winning. And so God, we thank you that death has no victory, that the grave has no sting. And God, as we turn our attention to your word right now, Lord, whatever we're facing, Lord, whether we have been walking in joy and victory this week or whether we've been in dust and ashes of defeat this week, Lord, I pray that we would hear from you, that you would speak to us and lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to uh, the end of Nehemiah chapter 9. And the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. If you don't own your own a copy of God's Word, this is our gift to you, or we'll just lend this uh, to you. Just put your hand up or holler at our ushers. We're a portable church. We don't have pew Bibles. We just have awesome ushers. And so we are uh, bringing to a conclusion uh, this week our series on the book of Nehemiah called Never Give Up. And as uh, Pastor Chris mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Haiti. And when I was in Haiti, this this bridge really caught my attention. As I was driving from Port-au-Prince to Jacmel, I saw this bridge. It's a highway bridge. You've got guardrails. It's all cement reinforced. It's a, a beautifully constructed bridge. But as I sort of approached it, I realized there's something not right about this bridge. As I got a little bit closer, it's just, this isn't just, this isn't looking right. And then when I got right to the edge of the road, I Someone gave up. I mean, the pictures don't really communicate the absurdity of what I saw on that road to Jock Mel. This bridge was like 97% done. I'm, that's taken from the road that this bridge was supposed to connect to. Just a few more feet of work, just a few more days of of construction would have meant so much difference socially, economically, for the communities that this bridge would have brought, but someone gave up. And that's what we've been studying here in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was, was given the, the privilege of being called back by God to rebuild the wall, and there were all kinds of reasons to give up. There were all kinds of reasons for this project not even to start in the first place. And the closer they got to the end, the harder it became. And once the wall was up, the job wasn't finished because God wasn't just rebuilding a wall. He was restoring a people. And today we're going to see how the book of Nehemiah comes to a conclusion. And, and today we're going to study how God never gives up on us. 
And so it's important before we jump in, let's just review where we have been. It began with the understanding in chapter one that God has a plan that God had promised that the people of Israel would be in exile for 70 years, but they would return and rebuild. And we reviewed hundreds of years of biblical history to show how God's plan was lining up. Then we talked about how God hears prayer when Nehemiah got on his knees for months, prayer and fasting, worshiping God, calling out to him, and that God is in control, that he took the heart of King Artaxerxes and turned it and gave Nehemiah favor to allow him to go home and how God protected Nehemiah on that long journey and then that God will fight for us even when the construction was underway they had to have a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other because there were people who were trying to attack them and scare them and then as we continued on into the, into the next chapters in five and six, we learned that God finishes what he starts, that the opposition got more intense the closer they came to the end and then God is speaking In Nehemiah 8, when Ezra stood on the platform and opened God's word and people listened for hours to the truth, the story of who God is, and then people confessed their sin because God is ready to forgive. And that's what we covered last week in Nehemiah chapter 9. And today we're studying God never gives up on us. So if you look at the very end of Nehemiah 9, chapter 9, verse 38, it says, because of all this, because of all this, this is, the, this is the conclusion of chapter nine. They had reviewed all of the history of how God from, from creation to Abraham to Moses, even on into the period of the judges and the kings, God was so good, God was so gracious, God was so patient, God was so faithful. Even though they had let him down so many times, they say, because of all this, they say, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so these people, as they heard from God's word in Nehemiah 8, as they confessed their sin and reviewed the history of God's people in Nehemiah 9, they wanted to put something in writing because they knew that God will never give up on us. And when you are a people that understand that you have a God that is so faithful, a God that will never quit, a God that will make sure that the bridge makes it to the end of the road every time, that changes something about the people. And what we're gonna see, we're gonna see three characteristics of a people who know that their God never gives up on them. And we see it here in verse 38. It says, we wanna make a firm covenant in writing. People who know that God never gives up on them are the kinds of people who first off make solemn commitments. The kinds of people who make solemn commitments. The same God that Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem served in 444 BC, it is the same God that we serve. He didn't give up on them, he's not going to give up on us. And because we know that God won't give up on us, we are a people who are willing and ready to make solemn commitments. They say we want to make a firm, a covenant. They want to put this in writing, it says. They seal the document and then they list all of the the names getting into chapter 10. There's 
uh, 27 verses there of names, 84 different names, the priests and the Levites and the different leaders. And then jumping down to verse 28, it says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into, notice this, a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our, of, of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Notice how uh, young and old were involved. Notice how male and female were involved. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you came from. Everyone was participating in this solemn commitment. They said, our commitment to one another and our commitment to God is too important to just remain informal. We're going to get serious about this. Let's get out a piece of paper. Let's write out what we're committing to and let's sign this document to show that we are making a serious commitment here. They say in verse 29, this this sort of general statement, we will do all of the commandments of God. But as they looked around their own lives and as they looked at the specific temptations that they were facing, they make three distinct promises. The first one is found in verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They make a commitment about marriage. And they commit to not allow marriage to happen with the other nations that are around them. Now, this isn't a, this isn't a racial thing. This is a religious thing. And, and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the explanation for this command is, is given. It says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. God God is not saying uh, don't marry people from other nations because because they're just from another nation or a different race or a different ethnicity. God is saying don't marry people who believe in different gods, who have different values. The case in point here is Ruth. Ruth was from Moab, but Ruth said, your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And that's why Ruth was welcomed into the people of God. That's why Ruth is part of the genealogy that we see being traced all through God's word. So they made this solemn commitment about relationships. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 gives the New Testament a parallel here. It's talking uh, specifically about widows, but the principle is true. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. Marriage is permanent. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married whom she wishes, note this, only in the Lord. Now, if that's true for a widow, that's true for someone who hasn't been married in the first place. That Christians are supposed to marry Christians. That the person that we make a solemn commitment to at the front of a church, that person has to say, yeah, your God is my God and your people are my people. It's a solemn commitment that they make to make sure that their children are going to marry fellow 
and believers. I had the privilege of uh, spending some time with Joel Dugard last weekend. You saw him uh, leading a worship here to give Jameson a bit of a, a, bit of a break. And uh, I don't know if you recognize the last name or not, but uh, Joel Dugard is the son of Todd Dugard, who was the first Canadian ever to plant a Harvest Bible Chapel. He planted in Barrie about 12 years ago. And uh, you can tell this next time you see Todd. Todd's far older than me. And, um, and I, I highly respect Todd. And uh, Todd... Uh, has been a faithful pastor. He's also been a faithful father. And uh, Joel and his brother and his sister are all adults and they're all walking with the Lord. I gotta tell you, one of my biggest fears in being in ministry is this whole pastor's kid thing. Uh, Just story after story of kids who were brought up as pastor's kids and because of some flaw they saw in their father or something they saw happen in the church, because of that, they were just turned off from God, turned off from the gospel. And I, I, I don't want that. Any way to pray for me, pray for that I'd be a faithful father and that my children would walk with the Lord. So I asked Joel, I asked Joel, I said, what is it? How did your parents what did they do to, to, so that all, all three of you now are walking so closely with the Lord and adulthood? And he, listen, he didn't even blink. He had the answer ready before I actually articulated the question. He said, they chose my entertainment and they chose my friends. They took care of what was, what was being brought into the, their, their children's mind. They, they, they didn't just sort of turn on the TV and flip to whatever you want, go on the web browser and check out, what, download any app you want, no. They, they were involved in the entertainment choices that the kids were making and also involved in the friendships. Listen, if your adult child who's professing to be a Christian wants to marry a non-Christian, that, that didn't... That didn't happen because of some flaw in our parenting when they were in their 20s. That happened somewhere far earlier in compromises in relationships. And these people made this solemn commitment, this solemn promise not to allow uh, intermarriage, interfaith marriage. Here's the second promise that they make in verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they make a promise about marriage. Now they make a promise about the Sabbath. And God had commanded that people are not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And this was something that they wanted to make a specific promise about. They had agreed, we'll obey all of the commands, but we're gonna pay special attention to this Sabbath law. And God had given the Sabbath as a gift. It was to remember that God was their creator, to remember that God was their redeemer. God created the world and rested on the seventh day. We're reminded of that in Exodus 20, but in Deuteronomy 5, when the 10 commandments are repeated, it says the reason why they're to rest is because God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. In Egypt, they had to work seven days a week. In Egypt, they had to work 365 days a year, but God had set them free, and now they had the privilege of having a Sabbath, having a time to rest, something they were never able to do in the past. But this was a temptation for them because there were other people who were gonna be coming in and they're gonna wanna trade on the Sabbath. And it was gonna be a huge step of faith because think of the competitive advantage that you're giving up. The other guy is working seven days a week to push his product and to build his business and you're only working six days a week. 
And it's hard to keep up in that kind of economic competitive environment, but they were committing. We're gonna work by faith. We're gonna rest by faith. We know that if I'm gonna provide for my family and that if I'm gonna make a profit and if I'm gonna grow this business, it's not just gonna be because of my hard work. It's gonna be because of the blessing and the favor of God. And because I care more about the blessing and favor of God, because I don't simply live by bread alone, I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, I'm gonna take one day a week, I'm going to rest. So they made that solemn commitment. And then in verse 32, here's the next commitment. It says, we take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel to the service of the house of God. And then for the next seven verses, you'll see multiple times of the house of God, of the house of God, of the house of God. They make some promises about the temple. And they promise, uh, verse 32 is a promise about taxation. They, they, this isn't a biblical command, but they, they promise to tax themselves to make sure that the temple has all the furnishings, all of the staffing, all, everything that's needed for worship to happen. They're going to do that. They're going to do that tax. And then verse 35, not just a tax, also the tithe, which is commanded in God's word. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit and every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. So they promise to tax, they promise to tithe, all for the purpose of the house of our God. Then you go to the very end of verse 39. It says, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so they make these three promises. They promise about the temple, they promise about intermarriage and they promise about the Sabbath. They make these solemn commitments. And when you know that God never gives up on you, you will be a person who's willing to make solemn commitments. When, when we give invitations for people to give their life to Jesus, to follow him, to receive the gift of eternal life, we try to break it down really simply, simple like A, B, C. Becoming a Christian is simple, it's not easy but it's simple. Some of the hardest things to do in the world are simple. That's even what makes them so hard is that they are so simple. ABC, admit that you're a sinner. Confess and repent of your sins. B, believe that Jesus died for you on the cross. And then so often people forget this third part, commit to following him. When we're talking about making disciples, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. When you become a Christian, you are solemnly committing to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. We make a number of solemn commitments. Marriage, as, as was mentioned right here in this passage, marriage is a solemn commitment. It's saying the love between us is so important and so beautiful. How dare we just let this remain casual and informal? I'm gonna make a promise to you before witnesses and before God that I will love you and be faithful to you forever. It's a solemn commitment. And it's something you sign a document. Similarly, we as a, we as a church, we have a, a church membership, a, a document that people sign when they want to become a member. Listen, the brotherhood and sisterhood among believers, the purity of the church, the mission of making disciples is too important just for us to be like, yeah, I'll get it. Yeah, sure, I'm in. No, we, we encourage people to count the cost, to think about what church membership means and then to sign on the dotted line to make a commitment. We must be a people who make, who make solemn commitments. 
Then in, if you look at chapter 11, verse one, it says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Because Jerusalem had been so vulnerable in the past, people were reluctant to actually move in there. All of the leaders lived there, but here they actually tithed people. A tithe means a one-tenth. And so they took one-tenth of the people and they kind of had a lottery. This isn't like Hunger Games, but they had a lottery and they chose who's going to go and leave their community and go and live in the city of Jerusalem. And then verse two says, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then in, from chapter 11, verse three, all the way to chapter 12, verse 26, you have hundreds of names. Another list in the book of Nehemiah, another list in the Bible. Listen, God loves lists. And sometimes we can get impatient with the list in God's word and I'm not gonna study it with you today. I'm, I'm not gonna uh, read from it today, but you need to understand that God loves lists. You should love lists too. This is a list of people who lived in the city of Jerusalem. Are you on the list of people? who are going to be welcomed into the new Jerusalem. There is another list, a list that all of us need to care about and we need to be thankful that God does care about lists and God does take attendance because there's the Lamb's book of life and our name must be on that list because it's a privilege to be able to live in the city of Jerusalem just like it was for them and we look forward to that new Jerusalem. So we're told that these people make this solemn commitment. Then the city begins to be repopulated. All these people start moving into the city again. Then we come to chapter 12 and verse 27. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. Notice this, to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and liars. Here's the second thing. If we are people who believe that God never gives up on us, we will be a people of joyful celebration. We will be a people of joyful celebration. Yes, following God is serious. Yes, we must make a commitment to one another and to him. And it's vitally important that we soberly understand the solemn commitments that we must make, but we're not just these solemn, serious people all the time. There is, a, there is a place for joyful celebrations. They're like, hey, get all the people, all of the Levites. We gotta have a party up in here and we need to get all the musical instruments, everything that needs to be happening. We're going to celebrate together. The word celebrates, I'm not making this up. It's right there in verse 27. Celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving. And so we need to be a people of joyful celebration. And they wanted to celebrate everything that God had done. God had fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to send all the people home. He stirred Artaxerxes' heart to let Nehemiah rebuild the wall and fund the whole project. He stirred in Ezra to preach the word. He stirred in the people to confess their sin and know that they were forgiven by a gracious and merciful God. They had so much to celebrate. Listen, if they had something to celebrate, how about us? God sent Nehemiah from Susa, that was great, but God sent us Jesus from heaven. And he didn't just rebuild a wall, he has rebuilt what's broken in us. And so we, of all people, must be a people who sing, a people who celebrate. Someone say hallelujah or something, is this true or not? 
And we need to be this kind of a people. A people of vibrant, joyful, passionate celebration. And some people think that your church is either solemn or church is a celebration. And at Harvest, we say church is both. It is both, and we're aiming for both of those things. We're not over here just all excited, not really knowing what we're singing about. No, we're studying hard. We're making commitments. We know that we're the people of God and what that involves. And because of that, we are gonna let the word of Christ, check this out, Colossians 3.16. We're gonna let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, that's what I'm doing right now, in another, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, notice this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We are to be a people of song, a people of singing, and notice the combination. It's coming from our mouths and our singing, but it's rooted in our hearts with thankfulness to God for all that he is and all that he's done. Now, this is really cool. If you look at, if you look at um, verse 29, sorry, I got excited. I lost my place there. Hold on, where am I? If you look at, where am I? Find it quick. Okay, 31. If you look at 31, it says, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. So he's got, he's got two choirs going. Notice where the choirs are. They're on the wall. Remember that whole joke about like, oh, if a fox went up on your wall, it'll topple the whole thing. Yeah, now you've got two massive choirs on the wall and all of the leaders are up there too. And it says that, it says that when they're on the wall there at the end of verse 31, it says one went to the south of the wall toward the dung gate. And then if you look over at verse 38, it says the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And so let's get up my lame hand-drawn map of Jerusalem here. And so chances are, maybe they started out somewhere around the valley gate. It says that one of the choirs went south. And so they went down towards the dung gate and then worked their way up. And the other choir, maybe they weren't as athletic because they had less of a distance to go, they went to the north. And, and they both ended up meeting at the temple. And just think about this, these massive choirs walking along the road. They've got harps and lyres, people playing their musical instruments as they're going. It's like this massive parade. And the people, they're down below the wall, all cheering like this. And so everyone is just sort of making their way along the circuit. Think about this picture, that beautiful image, and then flash back to Nehemiah chapter two. Another trip around the wall. Not during the day, not with all these people, no music, Nehemiah, pretty much by himself in the middle of the night. There was no wall to stand on. And all he was doing is just looking at rubble and just wondering, how are we ever gonna do this? How is this ever possible? And you need to understand that God never gives up on us you may feel like right now you're in the rubble. You may feel right now that your finances or your relationships or just your own sin, you feel like you're alone in the dark with the, with the rocks and there's no firm ground and you're afraid where you're gonna step and you don't know what the next step is. You need to know and understand that these people saw such a transformation in such a short time as they placed their faith in a God who never gives up on them. And it's true for them, it's true for you. You could be standing on solid ground before you know it. This is the God who never gives up on us. And the contrast of Nehemiah 2 and Nehemiah 12, 
and the difference that walking by faith makes in an individual's life and in the life of a community. And you got a picture that, that all of that's running through Nehemiah's head as he's leading one of these choirs. And they meet up at the temple. And then verse 33 says, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice. Notice this, with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You know when there's like a house party down the block and you can just kind of hear like, you can't really hear the melody, you can't really hear what's going on, but you know that there's, there's something up over there. That's what it was like in Jerusalem. The party was so loud from far away. The singing was so loud. These choirs on the road, these choirs on the wall. It could be heard from far away. We are called to be a people of joy. That, that such a shout of praise would be lifted up from this place that it would, that it would echo onto Queen Street and echo onto uh, McLaughlin and onto Chinkuzi and all throughout this city that, that, that God would do such a work here in our hearts that it would be heard and understood even for those who are far away and need to be brought near. Now, this would have been a great way for the book of Nehemiah to end. You know, the contrast, they were in rubble, now they're standing on the wall. All their enemies are behind them. This is, this is terrific. Roll the credits. That's not how the book of Nehemiah ends. And the reason why the book of Nehemiah doesn't end like that is because life isn't like that. And we do have our moments. We have moments of celebration and joy and we have mountaintop experiences with God and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's also valleys. And the interesting thing about Nehemiah as he's writing this book is that he could have, he could have just ended on the mountaintop. But he chose to end the book in a valley. So if you go to the 13th chapter and verse 4, it says, uh, now before this. When it says uh, before this, it's not saying uh, before what happened in chapter 12. What we're reading in chapter 13, the context is going to reveal is actually something that happened far later. It says, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. Now, just a, an initial reading of that is like, what, what's with this obscure detail? Well, the details are given so specifically is because we as readers are supposed to remember who Tobiah is. This person is being given an apartment in the temple complex. A room that's the size of a warehouse that is supposed to be filled with things that are used to worship God. Incense and, and grain, all of these things. This person is named Tobiah. Uh, Tobiah has shown up a number of different times 
in the book of Nehemiah. In chapter two, it says that he despised and jeered at the people of Israel. In chapter four, he was the one who made the joke about the fox toppling the wall with all of the others trying to ridicule the people of God. In chapter five and six, he was the one who was threatening to attack them by night. Later on in chapter six, he's the one who hired a false prophet to go and try to convince Nehemiah to go hide in the temple. He's also the one who was sending letters to Nehemiah continually trying to make him afraid to stop the work. This Tobiah, who mocked the construction of the wall, is now benefiting from the protection of the wall. This Tobiah, who is an Ammonite, who's not one of the people of God, is dwelling in the temple, a place where unless you're a Levite, you're not even supposed to be there. And he's dwelling in a place that is supposed to be filled with things for God. Now this warehouse, this is sort of, a, sort of an analogy for our lives. If we are not filling our lives with the things devoted to God, it will get filled with something else. No one lives as a vacuum. And so the people stopped filling their lives, stopped filling the warehouse with all of their tithes and offerings, with everything that was supposed to be devoted to God. And so the world came right in. And sometimes we wonder, why does does worldly thinking and worldly entertainment and worldly philosophy, why does it have such a root in our heart? It's because we're not filling our heart with the things of God. Why is my calendar, why do days just go by and I'm not spending time with the Lord? I'm doing all of these other things. It's because we're not filling our calendar with the things of God. How is it that churches can get so off track and become so worldly and look no different from the world around them? It's because the church stops filling itself with the things of God. How did all this happen? Well, look at verse six. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem at the beginning of verse seven. So Nehemiah, he went away for a brief period of time. And when he got there, he asked, can I go back? I wanna go see how the people are doing. And what we see is the people are not doing well. And this, this is a pattern all over the Bible. It's a pattern all over our lives. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God and the people make a golden calf while while he's up there. Paul goes around and plants all these churches all over Asia Minor and then he has to write all these letters trying trying to correct them because they're so off track. And here's the third thing that we need. If we're gonna be a people that believe that God never gives up on us, we need to be a people of loving confrontation. We need to be a people of loving confrontation. We're not just here to sort of celebrate and sort of create this big crowd and then go off and live our individual lives. No, we need to be involved in each other's lives. And sometimes we need to lovingly confront other people about their sin. And sometimes we need to let other people confront us about our sin. So check out, we're gonna get a lot of more insight into Nehemiah's character here. Verse eight. Oh, sorry, verse seven. And I came to Jerusalem and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of, of God. Verse eight. And I was very angry. I love his honesty there. And we know that the anger of, God, the anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God, the book of James says, but 
Marvin explained so beautifully last week in his message on 1 Corinthians 13 about how if you are a person who never gets angry, then there's actually something wrong with you. When we see injustice, we, we should get angry. When we see, if we're, if we're zealous for God and we see God being pushed aside or, or, or his truth being marginalized, that should anger us. Now, how we respond, that's what's crucial. The Bible tells us, in your anger, do not sin. So it says, and I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And so uh, Tobiah's obviously, you know, he's out for lunch or something like that. And he comes back and like all his furniture's on his front lawn. And I don't know if it was, I hope there was a second story window. I just, I'm just picturing this and Nehemiah's just chucking like, oh, there goes an end table. Oh, there goes a couch. Oh, there goes all, a lamp. Oh, watch out. It's all getting thrown out. And listen, sometimes we need people to come into our lives and just say, that doesn't belong here. Get it out. That's not honoring to the Lord. Let's get, give me a hand. It's kind of heavy. Let's throw this out of here. That's what Nehemiah does. Now, how is it that the, that that warehouse became available and why would they want Tobiah to be there? Now, Tobiah was wealthy. I bet you he offered to pay rent and they needed that revenue because of what's described in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The people stopped giving. And the Levites who to have a job and to provide for their family depended on the faithful giving of God's people, not just the Levites, but also the singers. And so... They just went back to their day job because the storehouse was empty and in comes Tobiah. How's Nehemiah gonna deal with this? He says, so I, I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So Nehemiah sets things right. See, we need to be a people of loving confrontation because people of solemn commitments can still break their commitments. Do you remember what they committed to in verse 10? Or chapter 10? They committed to have a tax and a tithe and they promised we will not neglect the house of God. Nehemiah goes away, what did they do? They stopped the taxing, they stopped the tithing, and they started neglecting God's house. And that's why we need loving confrontation. Because even though we make these commitments, sometimes we go back on them. Verse 15, it says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. He sees working on the Sabbath. What was the second thing that they committed to do in chapter 10? We will not do any work on the Sabbath. They committed to take care of the temple. They broke that promise. They committed not to work on the Sabbath and they broke that promise. But God never gives up on us. He sends Nehemiahs into our lives. It says in verse verse 17, then I confronted the nobles of Judah 
and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Notice how Nehemiah is not afraid to call sin, sin. He says, this is a sin. What you are doing is not right. And then we see that he established some boundaries. Sometimes what we need in our lives is some preemptive, proactive, preventative measures to make sure that we don't fall back into the same sin. So it says in verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And so what Nehemiah did is he said, we're just gonna shut the gates and, and we're not gonna allow temptation to come in. If someone wants to bring a cartload of, of fish to sell, if someone wants to bring a, a, a cartload of grapes, we don't want to be tempted to tread those grapes so that we can be ready to get them to market the next day. We're not going to allow the temptation in. We're going to shut the gates. And what we need is we need so often in our lives to anticipate how is temptation getting into our lives? How is sin taking root? And then shut the gate. Now listen, that's not the only answer. Our hearts need to be transformed by the reality of the gospel. But Nehemiah couldn't transform hearts. All he could do was close gates. And the principle remains. Sometimes we just need to close the gate. We're letting sin and temptation come into us too easily. And we need boundaries, barriers to stop it from coming in. And so Nehemiah establishes that. And so he, he is putting He's going around, he's lovingly confronting people. Now remember, they've, they've, they made three commitments. They committed about, about the Sabbath, they committed about the temple, and they committed about marriage. Can you guess what Nehemiah is gonna discover next? All three commitments, all broken. Chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Well, wait, 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 hey, Ruth was a Moabite, and so we, we know that this isn't a racial thing. Maybe, maybe they agreed to become believers in the true God. And so, well, look at verse 24. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Uh, so how were they learning the Bible? They weren't. They couldn't go to synagogue. They, they, they couldn't read God's word. They couldn't even understand God's word when a priest or a scribe was trying to explain it. This, isn't just a, a, this wasn't just a racial thing. This was a religious thing. They couldn't even speak the language to be able to hear the word of God. They broke their commitment. Verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. So after the service, we're going to invite you to come forward. And um, <laughs> I could have used a few more verses to explain how this all went down. Uh, Nehemiah was the governor. And uh, as a representative of the state, he could evaluate how someone had broken the law and then establish a punishment. 
and lashes, beatings. That's, that, that, that was something that was very common in those days for a punishment for committing a crime. And so this, this might have been very judicious and calculated and careful. To, the removing of hair from someone's beard was a symbol of shame. We see that a number of places in the Bible where you're, you're supposed to remo- have the hair removed and then walk around and allow people to see you in that state as a sign, oh, he did something wrong. Or Nehemiah could have just taken that anger, that zeal for God a little bit too far. Listen, there are no perfect leaders. And uh, we, we don't know exactly how that happened. We just know that Nehemiah took this obviously very seriously, perhaps too seriously. But I love what he does next. He says, I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He had them promise again. Now, logic would say, look, they made the promise. They made it back in chapter 10 and they've broken it. They're clearly not people of their word. And so why don't we just, just, just don't do anything about it. Why not just give up? But Nehemiah never gave up because he believed that never, God never gives up on us. And he, now listen, when we, when we stumble and fall, when we break our word, when we, when we don't follow through on commitments that we've made, the temptation is to say, what's the point? I don't wanna go through the shame and the guilt of, of having broken a promise again, so I'm just, not gonna, I'm just not gonna promise. But Nehemiah says, no, let's promise again. Let's by faith trust that God will help us follow through on what we've said before. There's some people here today right now, you're dating and you should be engaged. But the reason why you're not is because at least one of you is afraid to promise. You've seen how other people have broken promises in the past and you've seen how that's hurt you and other people. You yourself have broken your own promises and you're afraid to take that step. Some of you are here today, and you should be all in with our church. You love our church, you love Jesus, you love what's happening here, but you are reluctant to sign on the dotted line. You don't wanna become a member, why? Because you've been hurt before, and you've hurt other people before, and you're reluctant to make that promise again. Listen, Nehemiah says, let's start over. The past has happened, sin has taken place, and it was hard, and it was hurtful. But God never gives up on us. And so let's make this promise anew. And then he warns them from God's word. He's not just teaching his own personal opinion. Verse 28, he says, did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? He uses, just like we are, he uses the history of God's people to show them how it applies to their life. In the same way that we... Nehemiah looked back at Solomon and we're looking back at Nehemiah to see the importance of solemn commitments and loving confrontation. And then Nehemiah gives a a few more things that he needs to tidy up. But if you look at verse 30, this is how he wraps up the book. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. Life is messy. Chapter 13 is messy. And you know what? If there was a Nehemiah chapter 14, they would have need to be cleansed again. 
It's just messy. That's, that's, that's just the way that life is. He says, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each by his work, and I provided the food, sorry, I provided the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And so Nehemiah was a very wealthy person. The people hadn't been tithing. They couldn't worship the way they were supposed to because the Levites were off doing their day jobs. So Nehemiah personally got them back on the right track gave them the funding that they needed to staff the temple and to, and to make worship happen again. And then he concludes by saying, remember me, oh my God, for good. See, Nehemiah was looking forward to that day where he would see his savior face to face. And he wanted to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But it just seems weird to end a book this way. In, in the messiness, in the confrontation that's needed because people completely compromise on their commitments. It just seems like, can we go back to chapter 12 and get everyone up on the wall again and sing? But Nehemiah, I think, ends in such a beautiful way because Nehemiah is just one story that's part of a bigger story. And Nehemiah got a lot done, but he didn't do everything that needed to be done. He could... He could throw furniture out of the storeroom, but he couldn't throw sin out of people's hearts. He could shut the gates of the city, but he couldn't shut the flow of evil that is flowing outside of our hearts. Although he got so much done, his work was still somehow incomplete. And the work wasn't completed until that city welcomed someone from Nazareth. Until that city had their own time of singing, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, which is Palm Sunday, which we look forward to next week. But even when you think about the Gospels, I mean, Palm Sunday would have been a great way to end the Gospels. Jesus coming, everyone's so happy, they're waving hands, they're calling him the king, they got palm branches in the air. But if you end with Palm Sunday and you don't see the messiness of that week, the confrontation with the leaders and ultimately the trial and the crucifixion, you see, when we settle for these superficial endings to stories and we try to avoid the difficulty and the messiness of sin, if we just want Palm Sunday without Good Friday, if we just want Nehemiah 12 without Nehemiah 13, you miss out on Easter Sunday because Jesus came to once and for all deal with all the messiness and everything that Nehemiah did points to him. In fact, everything in this book points to him. Think about the things that that the people committed to and the commitments that they broke. They were committed to marriage. Why is marriage so important? Because it ultimately points to Jesus. Ephesians 5, check this out on the screen. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why are we serious about marriage? Because we're serious about Jesus. Because marriage isn't just a thing in and of itself. It is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And we should never give up on our marriages because Christ will never give up on his church. What else did they promise? They promised about the Sabbath. 
What's the point of the Sabbath? The Sabbath isn't just an end in and of itself. No, the Sabbath points to Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what the Sabbath is about, rest. And then he said later, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. We rest because our rest points to us by faith, trusting that God will provide for us now, but that God is leading us, as Hebrews 4 says, to an ultimate rest in him. And they also made a commitment about the temple. Why is the temple so important? The temple's so important because it represents the presence of God. Well, Jesus came to be the presence of God. His nickname was Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus said, hey, tear down this temple in three days and I'll rebuild it. Again, the whole book of Nehemiah tells us to never give up. But the whole book of Nehemiah points us to Jesus Christ. And he has promised us that although life is messy, I will cleanse you. Nehemiah, in whatever way you want to picture him doing it, had people beaten and pulled out their beard because of their sin. Jesus Christ was beaten and had his beard pulled out because of our sin. And Nehemiah invited the people to come and to live and to have their name on a list for people to live in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus invites us to have our name listed in the Lamb's book of life to live in the heavenly Jerusalem that he has promised for us. If you want to know that God will never give up on us, just look at the book of Nehemiah. If you want to know that God will never give up on us, just look at the face of Jesus Christ. He is faithful to the end. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. He will never give up on us. Let's pray together. So our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word to study it carefully, to apply it to our lives, God. Thank you that you love us and that you have spoken to us through your word and are speaking. And God, I pray for those people who feel like they are still living among the rubble, God. I pray that they would find hope in the truth that you will never give up on them and that you will do such a work of your grace and your patience and your love and your restoration, God. And Father, we look forward to that ultimate day where we will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, where we will be welcomed into the joy of our master and where we will celebrate God. And so God, we pray that in the mess of the lives that we are living in right now, in the hurt and the harm in the sin in the shame in the guilt, God, I pray that we would continue to come back to the truth that you will never give up on us that you are with us and for us and nothing, nothing can ever change that. And so God, we pray that you would draw us close to you now as we bring this this service uh, to a close. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.